0: Uh, It's great to be with you this afternoon slash morning. My name's Jonathan. I work in Next Generation Ministry. And I told the first service this, and so I'll tell you this. I am a youth worker. It is okay to say amen, hallelujah, you know, just not get off the stage or, you know, what whatever. I just want you to know that it is a wonderful opportunity to share with each one of you this morning. Also, I just want to say, if you're a brand new guest with us this morning, thank you for joining us. Uh, I am resuming a series in the book of John. We've been in that for about a year and a half. Uh, We took a break this summer, and uh, we just finished an amazing series called By Design, and thanks to the team for that. And then last Sunday, if you were here, uh, you heard Pastor Kirby deliver a phenomenal message on how believers can face anxiety. And so, this morning, I'd like you to take your Bibles and open up to the book of John. Open up to the book of John. As we begin this morning, uh, I want you to open up to John chapter 13. We're going to end up in John chapter 15, uh, but we've got to start in John chapter 13 to get a little bit of our context. Also, I warned the first service. um, The first little part uh, for a while is hard To stomach as believers because it's so difficult what the context is of what Jesus is telling his disciples is coming, and that's persecution. And so I want to let you know by the end of the message it will be super encouraging, but we do have to give all of the scriptures in its context the way it is delivered to us so that we can be true to the biblical veracity of what Jesus wanted us to hear. Uh, I'm going to begin with a, uh, a simple question for you. Have you ever had a regular day or a normal morning get interrupted with something that just threw everybody into worry and concern? This is, a, yes, okay, good. I remember one morning when I was at the office here at Grace and I was preparing for a Wednesday night with students and it was just like any other day and I got a phone call that my dad was in an accident and that we really didn't know his status. Now, this is a picture of my father about 16 years ago, or 15 years ago, and we, we think we were talking about it as a family, because I told him about the illustration It was around 2009, 2010. And when I got that phone call, I didn't really know what his status was. So in that moment, tons of things rushed through my head. Is he okay? Is he alive? What would life be like without my dad? What would my mom's life be like without my dad? What would my kids' life be like without their granddad? Was it his fault? And the questions kept coming. As I headed to the scene of the accident, I knew something had happened. I just didn't know the gravity of what the outcome would be. And as I got in my car to go to the scene, I began praying and hoping. And no matter what I did, I couldn't get rid of that pit in my stomach that uncertainty creates. Have you had that, family, uh, that feeling before? You know what that's like. This morning in our passage in John 15, the disciples had that same exact feeling, that feeling I had that morning with my dad, that pit in my stomach, the empty feeling of uncertainty and wondering how things were going to change. And as the disciples picked up food to eat at that last supper, many at the table had tons of unanswered questions. Well, as many of you know, John chapter 13 through 17 is in the middle of where our text is in the middle of the Last Supper. Moments before Jesus was to be handed over and of course his eventual crucifixion. It was Jesus's last meal with his disciples and Jesus's earthly ministry was coming to an end. They knew it and he knew it. Now, I want you to know this meal began like any other. And in the opening moments, you're there in John chapter 13, Jesus was expressing his love to every single disciple, including Judas. But once the foot washing was finished, Jesus abruptly predicted Judas's betrayal in chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. Moments later, as Judas left, Jesus then abruptly predicts Peter's denial in chapter 13 verses 31 through 38 so imagine if you're at the meal the tension in the room is already thick they just lost their treasurer and one of the key leaders of their group is going to betray Jesus what's going on? We know that there was, they were uneasy and that tensions were rising. We can feel it and we can still sense it from the text itself. Go to John chapter 14. If you'll notice, chapter 1, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus senses their uneasiness in the moment and they know something is coming and so does he? I'd also like you to notice that this meal, he attempts to calm them with the promise of the Holy Spirit to come after his departure. That's chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. He reaffirms that when he leaves them, he will be coming back for them and that he's going to prepare a place for them. Yet they can't see the place and they only hear in their mind, he's leaving us. Some disciples in the room are having a hard time believing it, (coughs) and they begin to doubt Jesus' death and resurrection. When he gathered on the mountain in Matthew 28, after those two things, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and tells them to go make disciples, we forget the verse 16 and 17 exists, where even then, after his death, burial, and resurrection, some doubted. So it's no surprise that in this moment, even with the impending promise of the Holy Spirit, there was a large amount of doubt in the room. Needless to say, they were unsettled. And like any family meal, when someone in the family is going to leave, Jesus, right before our text starts in verse 18, in verse 17, gives them a command. And here's what it is. I'd like to read it for us. It's Matthew, or John chapter 15, verse 17. He says, this is my command, love each other. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you, when you were younger, ignored your parents' instructions after they left the house? When my mom would leave me and my sister alone, guess what she would say? She would say, Okay, no fighting while I am gone. What did we do? Fight. Keep in mind, on the disciple group, we have two sets of brothers in the group of 12. I can almost sense James and John looking at each other, saying with their body language, yeah, love each other. Did you hear Jesus say that? I can also see Peter and Andrew, also brothers, staring at each other. I'm assuming Andrew was probably the smaller one because Jesus had the big mouth and he was kind of like the natural leader. I can hear Andrew saying under his breath, I hope he listens to Jesus's instructions. We know how serious Jesus was about this command to one love one another in the text because from John 14 verse 15 to John 15 17 the word love is used 18 times and phrases like greater love and Sacrificial love and love accompanied with joy and love accompanied with peace were all part of statements that Jesus made at this meal that pointed to this one cumulative command to love one another. Now, I just want to park here for one second. Jesus commanded his family to love one another, it wasn't an option. It had nothing to do with how any of them felt in the moment. And he sure didn't care if any of them had any history with each other prior to that moment. Brothers and sisters, what I'm getting at is what's coming next in the form of persecution, potentially to America that has already arrived at other places in the planet, has to find a unified church that loves one another, ear. Um, with complete love and without abandoning one another. Uh, Let me word it like this. If we don't understand the importance of loving one another and the help of the Holy Spirit and having a servant attitude toward one another, which Jesus demonstrated by the washing of feet, including a willingness to obey Jesus's commands, we will be unable to survive what is coming next. So I gave as our main idea for our text and our passage today, our main idea is how we treat one another in the church as brothers and sisters enables us to be prepared for what happens to us outside of the family of God in the world. So I have a couple simple illustrations and then we'll get to our actual text. Um, It says, first of all, I want to remind us we must love one another. That means tangibly, practically, literally, and physically. Now, some... People I know express love by hugging. More power to you. (laughs) If you know me, you know I am not a hugger. But if you need one, this church has plenty of them. Just not for me. (laughs) Number two, we must be willing to wash one another's feet. And let me tell you, if you're looking for a church family, look no further. There are a lot of clean feet around here. A lot of serving goes on in this church. Even this coming Saturday, we're serving our neighborhood uh, community. Also, we must be willing to follow the Holy Spirit. It can't just be business as usual. I did my Sunday activity and I'm good. We need to be listening and sensing and following the presence of the Spirit. Even Paul suggests that we need to, states, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. That's a real instruction, not just a suggestion. So as we love one another and serve one another, we do so without holding on to issues in the past. We are a forgiven people, so we offer forgiveness freely. Grudges are not godly. They are godless reasons that keep you from loving the people Christ died for and gave his life for. So I recommend strongly, let's let go of them. If we do not let go of them, we will realize that what we are potentially doing is fighting what we perceive to be an enemy within our body. Instead, I remind you, the enemy is outside of our body. And so, I also want to encourage us that we are not just to say, I love you, but we must practice it according to 1 John three seventeen. not just in word, but indeed in as well. So... Even though I can do without the hugs, it's good to know that you can have one when you need it. Come on, amen. In this technology age, we still need physical touch. And if I could put this up on the screen, sometimes emojis from your friend on your phone, just don't cut it. This is the universal picture for a hug. After looking at that hug emoji, I think even I would prefer a real hug. Can I get an amen on that? So God designed his family to be together. And if not for the simple reason that we need one another because of what we're going to face outside of our family gatherings. And if you haven't felt the tension of persecution in one way or another, Jesus is warning us in our text today, it's coming. Now I'm ready for us to stand and read the scriptures together in honor of the word of God. So if you would stand together this morning, because it's a little bit lengthy, I'm going to read that for us. We do this in the honor of the word of God. And today, these are specific words of Jesus that we are reading together in our assembly and our gathering. Uh, Let's read together John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Verse 26. When the counselor comes, who I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. Verse 16 or chapter 16, verse one. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. You may be seated. I titled this message, Why Does the World Hate Us? Answer number one, the world hates us because the world hated Christ. I remind you, verse 18, the world hates, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. Uh, I want you to know first uh, a couple definitions. I'm going to give you two definitions during this morning. The first one is world, and the next one is a witness a little later on. What is the world which we are talking about? If the world hates us, what are we talking about? Well, the biblical concept of world falls into five categories, five categories. The first one is the physical world. The second one is the human world. The third one is the moral world. The fourth one is the temporal world. And the fifth one is the coming world. All of those worlds are represented in the Bible in its teaching. In this text, we are talking specifically about the moral world. The moral world includes people indifferent or hostile to God. Because of the world's hostility to God, it is full of corruption, according to 2 Peter 1.4, and it stands as a symbol of corruption. So when I refer to the world this morning, that's what I'm speaking of. The leader of the world is Satan. He hates Jesus and he hates us. In contrast, praise God, our leader, Jesus Christ, offers the example of sacrificial love with our best interest in mind. Do you see the two contrasts of the systems? With this reminder, I want to ask, why would we ever Love this world or the things in the world. The schemes of Satan, and that's what the Bible calls them, are designed to destroy us and our relationship with Christ and our future. Let us, family, never think that the world and its leaders have a better idea for our own family, for our future, for our weekends, or for our happiness than Jesus Christ himself offers. Right? So that then means there's a warning. If we aren't close to him and we aren't loving him, we begin to think that more joy, more happiness, more contentment is found in other things outside of his family and outside of his gatherings called the church. And this just isn't true. I want to encourage you to check your heart this morning. What is the temperature of your love life with the Savior? Even one of the greatest churches in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 2 is Ephesus. And they were reminded to watch out because they have left their first Love. I want to remind each one of us today, Jesus Christ loves us. There is nothing more tempting out there that can provide happiness than our relationship with him here in our church family. So the question is, what is happening in this text? And I warned you a little bit about the stark reality, so I'm just going to have to share it with you. There's no way around it. In John 15, 18, Jesus tells them the truth about what is coming. And here's what it looks like. His words move from love to hate, from peace to persecution, from joy to sorrow, from comfort to needing a comforter. And the same Jesus that commanded them to love one another is now warning them of what will happen outside of the family in the near future in the world. Remember that tension I spoke of? It's really thick now. Jesus gives them this stark reality, which I'm just going to read out loud because I've summarized the exact statements. Jesus is saying, the world hates me. Don't be surprised. The world's going to hate you too. We do not belong to the world. That's why the world hates us. They persecuted me. Therefore, they're going to persecute you. The world is guilty of sin because I came and now they're without excuse They hate me without reason. I am telling you this so that you do not wonder and you don't quit. And in fact, anyone who kills you will think that they're offering a service to God. And I'm warning you of these things now so that you can remember that I warned you when those things actually happened. Those are the words from the text. Jesus gives us an answer of why the world hates us and it's simple, it hated him. Answer number two, why does the world hate us? Well, the text says the world hates Christians because the world doesn't know God. If you look in verse 20, it says, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Note verse 21, They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Since the world does not know God, they don't know the differences between us and them. Have you ever thought about, let's just pull over for a second. Have you ever thought about the differences between someone who believes the Bible and has a relationship with Jesus Christ and the one who doesn't? Think with me. There's a whole bunch of them, but I highlighted just a few. First of all, the difference of the view of the Bible. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with him. You primarily hold that the Bible was delivered by the Holy Spirit to man, and you hold it for all authority, faith, and practice. If you don't believe that, it's offensive for people who do that. Number two, we have a different view of Jesus. We view Jesus as being the only and exclusive way of salvation. If other people have different ways, that statement's offensive to them. How about this? We have a different view of the nature of man. We we believe that men and women are born sinners. We don't have to teach them how to sin. We actually have to teach them how to be righteous. But if you believe that you were born good, this statement is very offensive to you. And here's another one. I could go on. Here's just one. We have a different view of purpose. When Jesus shares in verse 19, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. Believers have a different purpose. If you don't view it that way and you don't, our purpose is to live for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. If you don't have a relationship with him, that statement is offensive. Now, I'm not trying to, you know, explain it overtly to you. I just want to remind all of us it is what it is, right? Even the disciples noted the difference between believers and unbelievers years later when they wrote. For instance, Peter, who was at that meal, he notes the differences between believers and the world in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4. Listen as I read. He who has suffered in the body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, and he reflects on how pagans view us they think the pagans think it's strange that you don't just run with them and do the same things they do or plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you for not joining them. And they'll, and they're carousing and all kinds of things that they do. Heap abuse. John was at that meal And he also speaks of this difference multiple times. Uh, One of them is in 1 John 3, 7. Let me read it to you. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. He remembers the verse and the command that Jesus spoke to him to love one another and he reminds them, hey, look, you know you're part of the family of God if you love one another. If you're not, you're not part of that family. 1 John 4, 4, he says, you, dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Is it clear? The differences are incredibly obvious. So here's what my key point on us as a believer, having left the kingdom of darkness, the world, and having been transferred into the kingdom of God's son, I praise God. We have a different joy. We have a different purpose. We have a different hope and we have a different standard than those without Christ. We are a new creation. And friends, that's a lot to celebrate. So this new standard, this new hope, this new life is offensive to those without it that we would suggest in any way whatsoever that it is better than what they have. Paul makes this difference incredibly clear in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 when he talks about the world and the unregenerate person. Listen to all these things he lists. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, Witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I just listed for you all the characteristics of the kingdom of this world. Then, In contrast, one verse later, Paul says, However, here's what the people are like who belong to Christ. You may recognize it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If the world hates us for these things, so be it. I'm fine with that. Now, you put those two people in the same room. Watch this. You put the Christian in the room and the non-believer in the room. I can tell you which one will despise the other. One will have compassion on the other like Jesus did when he looked over Jerusalem and had compassion on them. And the other will have had enough of the compassion before it even starts. So answer number two, the root cause of the world's hatred against followers of Jesus is that the world doesn't know God. Therefore, they don't know us and our differences. Answer number three, I'm almost to the really encouraging part, although that was very encouraging. Answer number three, the world hates Christians because Christ reveals sin. Christ reveals sin. Notice verse 22. It says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of Sin. In our flesh, we don't want to admit that we sin, and in our pride, we don't like to admit we're wrong. However, the primary difference between believers and non believers is we have that point where Jesus Christ has drawn us to salvation, and we admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we ask for forgiveness and receive that forgiveness. It's that simple. Francis Chafer said, if I had an hour to spend with somebody who's not a Christian, I would spend 55 minutes talking to them about their sin. Now, you want to know how this works out in real life? You post anywhere on any social media site that someone is wrong about what they are thinking and what they are posting or suggest in any way that what they are doing is sin, I guarantee you, you will feel the backlash and hatred regardless of what, whether what you said is right or wrong. You will feel it. The Jews in this text are exact are acting the same way as people are today. This is no surprise. If you would look to chapter 16, verse 2, it says, they will put you, the disciples, out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And it's true. Remember the name Saul? He was doing just that persecuting them dramatically. All these years later, I want to ask in our culture and in the world, how bad is the persecution? How bad is it? I'd like you to go ahead and look up on the screen. This is a report that came out from Open Doors 2020 about worldwide persecution. I want you to know the section where it says extreme. In those places, if you speak the name of Jesus, try to proselytize in any way or have the word of God, it could potentially mean your life. Now... Imagine you're one of the disciples. Keep that up for a second. Imagine you're one of the disciples at the meal. Think through their reality with me and sympathize with their uneasiness and the pit of their stomach that they're uncertain about their future. We can look back and see, watch, just 50 days after Jesus spoke this to them was when the persecution began for them. 50 days Imagine if I said to each one of you in 50 days, we will see persecution in America like no other. They're going to hate you. They're going to go after you and they're going to put you out of any religious area because they think they're doing God a service. Man, it'd get real, real, real fast. In Acts chapter two, after the death of Christ, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins preaching just 50 days from this moment right here. In Acts 4, the disciples are put in jail for the first time. In Acts 5, the apostles are persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders, the Sadducees. By Acts 6, Stephen is seized, brought before the Jewish religious leaders, and through a quick trial and hatred in their hearts, they stone him. I want you to note in Acts six fifteen, while they sat before him, it is reflected and recorded that they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now I just want to stop and relate how much hatred they had in this moment to kill somebody who had a face that looked like the face of an angel. If you would take for me the most beautiful image of any two-year-old to a six-year-old, any one of them. They're just the most beautiful things. I mean, I remember when my kids were that age and you just want to love on them and kiss on them and hold them and stuff like that. They had so much anger in their heart that even though he had the face of an angel, they picked up stones and they murdered him. And the scripture says in Acts 7:54, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I assure you family, the hate is real. By Acts 8 persecution breaks out all over at the hands of Saul By Acts 12 the first apostle James is murdered by Herod And I want to remind you it's a little bit in that same text And a little later that they're praying all night long For Peter to be released from prison Because Herod was ready to kill him too And eventually all the apostles were martyred Except for John who was exiled Now I want to share a few things to remind you about persecution before we move on to more encouraging words. Number one, we are never to go looking for it. Number two, we should not have a desire to be hated. We shouldn't come to worship going, oh, I'm so glad they hate us. No, our compassion flows the other way. We are not to go around arrogantly looking for arguments or trying to stir up trouble. And also persecution, like I mentioned before, is to never come from within our own church. The enemy is outside the walls of this building, not inside. And we are also not to think that we are to go through this alone. I, as I studied, something jumped off the page at me that I was unprepared for, and it's this. Nowhere in this entire text does Jesus single out one person. He always used the personal, used the plural pronoun you when he referenced them. And it's a great point. None of us are to go through this alone. We have our church family to go through this together. So, you ready for some good news? Are you there? Good news number 1. The Holy Spirit is going to testify about Jesus Christ in the midst of all of this persecution. Would you look at the text John 15:26? When the counselor comes, by the way, this is what Jesus was encouraging the disciples who just in 50 days are going to go through this. He says, when the counselor comes, who I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. Now, I've got good news for you. If you're worried about whether or not when persecution comes, if you're going to say anything, I've got good news. Even if you don't, the Holy Spirit will. That is encouraging to somebody who is afraid. And here's what's so cool about it. The Holy Spirit is going to testify in the midst of our fear. That means the message of the gospel is still going out. If you don't believe me, I've got a beautiful illustration of this. Pastor Josh was here this last summer, and he told me the story of a young man who came up to him. In the middle of the night, the Lord woke him up. with, or He had a dream, and in the middle of this dream, it said, I want you to go to this man, and as you find this man, I want you to, he's going to give you a Bible, and as he gives you the Bible, I want you to listen to him. Okay, and then about three days later, they meet up and Josh talks with this guy and all of a sudden, now this guy says, well, I was already told I'm gonna meet you and you're supposed to give me a Bible. Okay, look, could Josh have done that? No, it was the Holy Spirit. Good news number two. You and I will testify about Christ. If you look at verse 27, he says to his disciples, and you also must testify. Testify for you've been with me from the beginning. The word must is fascinating. It's no surprise that Jesus repeated this thought. He also did it in Acts 1 8 to the very disciples that were with him at the meal. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Twice specifically, if not many more times, the disciples themselves heard you are going to be my witness. Now, the first question I have is, what is a witness? Thank you. Good question. It's someone who sees something take place or experiences something taking place and then testifies about it to others. Just this morning when I walked in, people know I'm an Iowa Hawkeye fan. When I walked in this morning, they said, well, congratulations, but it wasn't much of a game. If you saw it, you would agree. Feels like neither one of the teams are going anywhere, but I'm not gonna get off on that. But here's what happened. As they come in, the first thing they did is they testified to what they did the day before and it wasn't hard. I want you to know that we testify together what Jesus Christ has done for us. How does that look? Great question. When we worship in song this morning, we just testified. When we forgive other people, both inside the church and outside the church, we're testifying. When we live uprightly and righteously and don't participate in the carousing or other things that the world does, we're testifying. When we hold our tongue, when we want to lash out both inside and outside, we're testifying. And when we take the gospel to places it has never been, and places it has been before, but we take it with even more vigor and prayer. We are testifying like Goodrill or Seidel or maybe even Southeast Polk and other places we're going on Saturday in our neighborhood to serve. We are testifying of the power of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? So as we conclude, how do we do that? I have a couple of simple suggestions and then we're going to finish. Number one, share about your salvation. So this week, I'm going to challenge you, church family, tell your story of your conversion to someone. And I'm going to recommend you do it in person, or electronically or the old-school way, write a note. Tell them your story. Number two, I recommend, if you've not been baptized, get baptized. Here's why in baptism, you're declaring publicly your conversion and you're sharing the story of how that happened, both with our church family. And then we send that out electronically. Number three, become a member of this local family. We call it church membership. Two weeks from now, you can hear a little bit more about what that looks like. But here's the good news Do you know that when you become a member at this church, you share your testimony with us and we celebrate what God has done? That's testifying or being a witness to what He's done. It's that simple. Here's number four recommendation. This is actually one of the harder ones live a Christian life without contradictions. So, let me explain. Don't talk about being in the world and not of it, but live exactly like the ones that are of it. The world hates when we're different and like Christ, but get this, they're confused when we say we are like Christ, but live like them. This confuses the message we're trying to send. How many of you hate confusing messages? I do. Here's a couple of them. Take a look that's confusing. How about that one? It's confusing. There you go. That's confusing. And then the last one, honk if you love peace and quiet. Come on. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I have two practical applications I want to challenge you with this morning. One is inside our church family and one is outside of it. The first one is inside of it. If you know and are convicted by the Holy Spirit that there are people in this church family... That you can't say in time of persecution, I'm going to love and care and help them because of a grudge or because of an issue or because of bad history or because you just don't like them. Would you, first of all, confess that to the Lord right now and then ask him to help you mend that? Because persecution is coming, the enemy cannot be within us it is without us, outside of us. The second thing is this, and it reflects to out of house, the heads bowed and eyes closed. If you would say this morning, I'm sending mixed messages. I know it. My life is kind of a contradiction. I say I'm following Christ, but people outside of church, because they saw me come here, can't tell it. And I'm convicted this morning. I need to start walking with Christ. I know I have a relationship, but I need to start walking with him. I want you to confess that to him. It also brings up the great point if you say, well, the reason there's contradictions is because I'm just not sure about my relationship with Christ. I've got good news for you. You can begin the relationship right now, this morning. You can pray in your heart to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, confess your sins, believe in his death, burial and resurrection and ask him to come into your life. It does not take rocket science, but does take a repentant heart. And then finally, I'd like you to listen as I read this statement and I'm going to close in prayer we should not covet family or expect the praise of ungodly people. The very fact that they are inclined to persecute us is proof that we are not of the world. Therefore, let's live like it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd give us the ability to live out these words as we follow your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our daily life encourage us like you have done with these disciples today and help us as we go forward in the world that we live in. In Jesus name. Amen. Thank you, dear friends for listening this morning.